This is a special edition of Scientific American Science Talk, hosted on June 18th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. Welcome, everyone, to Science on the Hill. And that is Scientific American Senior Editor Mark Fischetti. Today, we're holding a special panel discussion about the future of our climate, hosted by Scientific American and Nature Research, which are both part of Springer Nature, with support from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and especially support from California Congressman Jerry McNerney, who has been our partner for all four of our Science on the Hill presentations. We usually go to Capitol Hill once or twice a year for panel discussions about scientific issues facing the country. Because of COVID, we did this latest Science on the Hill panel with all the participants reporting in from their homes. Before we get to that panel discussion, here's a brief conversation between Fischetti and our congressional host, Jerry McNerney. Climate change affects the economy, energy, agriculture, emergency planning, public health. There are certainly some disagreements about uh, the extent of climate change and the pace of climate change. But even with that, is is it possible to have a unified federal effort to do what we can to uh, protect the country and, and the planet? I think it is. And in the past, there has that has been the case. And I mean, the country's always had a a political system with sides that disagree with each other, uh, and yet we've been able to step up uh, significantly, say, in uh, in the Great Wars, and we've been able to step up in the, in the Depression. And I think that's needed now. We need a, 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 a federal effort that is a matter of consensus that people can get behind, uh, that the federal government is willing to fund, um, and puts uh, leadership uh, and confidence into the American people that we're going to be able to overcome this. And uh, right now, I, I don't think we have that. And unfortunately, it's setting us back, especially with regard to the pandemic, but also it's prevented any sort of uh, realistic, important action to prevent uh, climate change from, from uh, continuing uh, its path. So given that context, um, what one or two clear messages can representatives and senators provide to their constituents about how the future of climate change will affect them? Well, I think the one message that's so important is how serious the situation is. I mean, just because um, climate change is acting slowly doesn't mean that it's not gaining momentum. It doesn't mean that it's not opposing a serious threat to our well-being. And so that's important. We need to take action to slow and ultimately halt climate change. Uh, and I think it can be, the next message would be that it, it would be a significant opportunity uh, to transform the economy and, and create employment and uh, create a sustainable environment um, and, uh, and other uh, very beneficial side effects if we continue and think this thing through uh, take reasonable steps, uh, you know, in creating efficiency and creating uh, new energy technologies and uh, taking advantage of uh, te- technology to telecommute more. I mean, these these things make sense. They're they're doable, uh, and I think if we work together, we can make them happen. Um, another thing that's very important is that the younger generation of Americans are very concerned about climate change, and they're they're not going to be ignored. I mean, they they are demanding to be heard on this issue. So the longer we ignore the uh, younger generation, the bigger price there's going to be uh, to pay on this. So I think there's a lot of reasons uh, that we need to move forward, and there's uh, some good messages that will help, uh, help us do that. Is there anything else um, you wanted to raise or address? 
Well, sure. You know, the thing is, uh, climate change and uh, the pandemic are uh, climate change is not necessarily causing the pandemic. I mean, they seem to be independent, but there's an underlying issue that that is fueling both of these, and that is uh, the human beings are encroaching further and further into nature and pushing harder and harder against nature. And of course, nature is going to push back. It, 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 it's inevitable that it will. So uh, what we need to do is uh, pay attention to what our, our, our ecosystems are telling us. You know, is this, uh, if we add more carbon to the atmosphere, if we burn more fossil fuels, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to see a pushback from nature. If we incurred further and further into uh, wild ecosystems, you know, they're going to push back in their own way too. So uh, let's step back and uh, examine, you know, what effect our, uh, our, our species is having on the planet and how we can uh, develop a sustainable future uh, and that, that will be uh, something that we can all uh, and all our, our descendants can thrive in. So it's a big challenge. We're not... We're not there yet, um, but I think these kind of events are going to awaken the public to the need to start thinking in those terms. Now on to the panel. Mark Fischetti was joined by three senior scientists who have worked extensively with climate models. Robert Kopp, a climate scientist and director of the Rutgers Institute of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Science at Rutgers University. Catherine Calvin, an Earth scientist and specialist in human and Earth system modeling at the Pacific Northwest Laboratory's Joint Global Change Research Institute, and Claudia Tabaldi, also an Earth scientist with the Joint Global Change Research Institute. Like Bob and Kate, Claudia is a lead author for the upcoming climate assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Here's Mark Fischetti. Our ability to predict and understand our future climate depends on scientific climate models. We hear a lot of scenarios about how much higher temperature will go, how much higher sea levels will rise, how much worse storms will get, and other serious threats to our lives and our jobs, such as deadly heat waves and crippling droughts. How should you, our audience, interpret the projections you hear? What can scientists say for sure about projections from the climate models? And what's less certain? And what can U.S. representatives and senators say to their constituents about how the future of climate change will affect them? Bob, to kick us off, can you briefly lay out the range of climate projections that we hear about and introduce us to a few of the landmark reports that are based on those projections? Sure. When we think about climate projections, there's really three parts to the problem. So first, what are humanity's greenhouse gas emissions going to be? The uncertainty in things like technological change, economic change, and policy change is the largest driver in the spread of scientific projections of future climate beyond the next couple of decades, because we can't predict these changes. All we can do is look at scenarios. And Kate is one of the world experts on the integrated assessment models used to help explore these scenarios, so you'll hear more about this from her. The second problem is how the climate system, both sort of at a global average, but also locally in specific places, is going to respond to these greenhouse gas emissions. And the key tools here are called global climate models, or sometimes Earth system models, or sometimes people will just call these climate models and mean this particular type of models. And these models represent our understanding of the physics and the chemistry of the climate system and have roots going back to the 19th century. When people talk about climate models, this is usually what they mean, the models of the physical system. 
And the third problem is how changes in the climate, how changes in heat, changes in humidity, changes in rainfalls, changes in sea level affect people and the things we care about, like public health, the economy, ecosystems, infrastructure. Um, and there's a variety of tools here that go under the label of impact models. And I think we're going to talk more about those later. The big assessment reports, things like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which all three of us are lead authors on and has its next big report in 2021, or the U.S. National Climate Assessment, to which I think we've all contributed as well and has the next one due in 2022. These draw upon the peer-reviewed literature, which includes all of these modeling tools and many other lines of information whether it's geology telling us about past warm climate, instrumental observations telling us about how things have changed over the last couple of centuries, the basic physics, and they use all these to characterize the current scientific understanding of how the climate's changed so far and how likely it is to change under different scenarios. And so you asked about the range of, of climate projections, and you know it's a broad range because of particularly the uncertainty in the emissions. Um, but there's a basic common lesson that has emerged over the last decade and a half. The rise in global average temperature caused by carbon dioxide is roughly proportional to the cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide. So that means every ton of CO2 we emit makes the planet a little warmer for centuries to come, most likely by about one degree Fahrenheit for every trillion tons of carbon dioxide we emit. So right now we're emitting enough carbon dioxide uh, and running it fast enough to raise the planetary temperature by about one degree Fahrenheit in a quarter of a century. And the only way to stabilize the climate is to stop. Great, thanks. I'm Claudia. Can you distinguish between predictions and projections and uh, briefly explain the role that models play in creating the projections? Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Bob, for this great introduction. Um, there is a fundamental difference between the way we think of future climate, and therefore we talk about projections and the way we think about future weather, and in that realm we like to use the word prediction. And the way I want to try and describe this is thinking of when we look at weather forecasts, uh, we open an app like weather.com or the National Weather Service website, and we look at what's going to happen tomorrow or the next days, and we see you know, for forecasts that say it's going to be cloudy with a certain chance of uh, rain, or it's going to be sunny, and the temperature is going to be so-and-so. And we don't find a disclaimer at the end of these uh, pages that says, by the way, be careful because everything could change radically depending on you know how much traffic there is going to be in your city tomorrow. That's the fundamental difference when we look at climate projections where the external conditions that are driving changes in climate can change dramatically depending on our choices and our policies. And so what we say about climate futures needs to have that disclaimer, needs to have a little asterisk that says, here is what my climate simulation is telling you, but this is based on assumptions about our greenhouse gas emission, about trees, that, that we plant or that we cut down. And um, depending on those assumptions, here is our trajectory of climate future. But that can change radically if we decide to curb those emissions, if we decide to curb air pollution, if we decide to plant trees rather than cutting them down. And so that's the fundamental difference between projections that are conditional on assumptions about our own actions and policies and predictions that are unconditional. 
The second part of the question was about the role of models uh, in creating these projections. The point here is that our climate system is complex and what we are going to do to change the trajectory of climate can uh, vary widely. And the effect of those forces is very difficult to just, uh, you know, guess in terms of extrapolating current trends or running simple statistical models. We need very complex and um, comprehensive models of the Earth system to um, produce the result of our, you know, greenhouse gas emissions trajectories and uh, all the other external forces that can change in the future. And so climate models are our best way to project ahead the changes in our system um, with our best understanding of the science behind it. But I, I also want to make the point that, you know, if you're interested in very short term, sometimes you don't need climate models to do some, uh, you know, robust uh, policy uh, study about adaptation or uh, uh, mitigation. Sometimes if you're interested in just the next few years, uh, what's happening right now and what happened in the recent past can be enough to guide your decisions. Thanks, Claudia. Kate, can you can you tell us more about the considerations that go into the models that forecast future climate and, and tell us what comes out of the models? Yeah, thank you, Mark. And thank you, Bob and Claudia, for setting that up. So as Bob and Claudia both mentioned, these climate projections, um, they're based on emission scenarios. And so what goes into these models is a, an assumption about how emissions might change in the future. And what you get out are estimates of changes in the Earth system, like changes in temperature, precipitation, and carbon. And those can be used to quantify the impacts of climate change. The emission scenarios that go in are looking at how the world's energy, agriculture, and land systems might evolve in the, in the future. And as Bob mentioned, these are coming from models too. So, and it's for the same reasons Claudia mentioned with climate, that the interactions between energy, agriculture, and land, and emissions, they're really complex. And so we use a model to help us understand those relationships. But as you get further into the future, how those changes um, might evolve depends a lot on uncertainties and things we do. So the scenarios we use in climate models, they differ in terms of their population, their income, behavior, technology, and policy, all of which affect emissions in the future. So just as an example, there are scenarios out there where population continues to grow, reaching 12 billion in 2100. And there are scenarios where population peaks mid-century and declines in, um, after 2050. There's scenarios with rapid declines in the cost of renewables, and there are scenarios with more modest declines in those costs, and all of those factors play out. But the biggest difference between the high and low emission scenarios that climate models use is policy. So the incentives and regulations that we include in a scenario have a significant effect on the future emissions. Can you give us just one example of a policy measure that's been enacted or has been discussed and how that might affect the output of a model? Yeah, so if you're thinking about ones that have been discussed or enacted in the, um, ones that have been enacted in the past, there's things like renewable portfolio standards that incentivize renewables and that'll affect the deployment of that. 
a lot of what ends up um, being used in the models, particularly when you get towards 2100, are carbon prices. Um, and there are some examples of carbon prices in the world. There are some examples of discussions of carbon prices in the U.S., but that's the tool that's most um, often used in a model in order to change emissions in the future. And it provides an incentive towards lower carbon uh, fuels and options. Great. Um, Claudia, we, uh, we're going to get into this more, but uh, can you give us a, a little bit of sense, you know, um, the, of how closely the models agree or don't agree? I mean, there are different models run on different, many different factors that we've already heard. Um, and there, we'll talk about scenarios in a moment, but can you just give us some sort of general sense about that? Yes. Um, I hate to start my answer by saying it's complicated. <laughs> it is a little bit complicated in the sense that it really depends on the scale at which you're looking at, you know, the outcome. So, you know, if you go from global averages to very local changes, uh, chances are that the models will agree much better on the global average than the local changes. Uh, if you're looking at something relatively uh, simple to uh, project ahead, like temperature, and instead you're looking at something more complex like, you know, humidity or soil moisture, uh, chances are that models are going to agree better on the temperature than the more complex quantities. But the point is that, you know, models agree on the general behavior of the climate system. So there is no model that says we're going to cool rather than warm or um, they also agree on the spatial pattern of change. So models have been very robust over the last few decades, actually, being able to pinpoint those areas areas of the world that are going to warm more than others, for example. When it comes to things like precipitation, models agree at a fairly consistent large scales on the area of the world that are going to see increases in average precipitation and the area of the world that are going to be hot spots for things like drought and, and the consequences of drought, like, for example, wildfires. So um, models agree on the general um, direction of change, agree on where those changes are going to be more or less severe. When it comes to actual numbers, models still disagree or uh, at least give us a range that will have to be taken into account for any kind of adaptation policy. But um, we have a lot of information from this model that is actionable. Thanks, Claudia. So, the, so it sounds like there's a range of scenarios, and we do hear um, about certain scenarios a lot, such as business as usual, or if we are really aggressive about reducing carbon emissions. Um, can can one of you sort of give us the general range of of what the model scenarios are? Sure, I can start. Um... And so the, the scenarios that we run in climate models, we've designed them to span a range of plausible outcomes. So you want sort of to be able to understand what might be possible or plausible in 2100. So they're designed specifically in that way. Um, and they're, you know, we want a small number. Um, running an Earth system model takes a lot of computer time and a lot of people time. So we have a small number spaced evenly among that. But it's, again, we've designed them to span a range. And if you look at sort of, the um, the high end and the low end, um, they're, they're very different in terms of the things I mentioned before, population, income, behavior, technology, and policy. And, and the big differences tend to be, you know, the, the high end one is going to have a lot of fossil fuel emissions, and the low end is going to have a transition towards low or no carbon energy systems. 
I, I would say that there's, it's important to note that there's many paths to the same level of emissions. So while we've given the climate models one particular path to high or low emissions, there are other ways to get there. And what do we mean by business as usual? We hear that often. So I actually don't like the term business as usual. I think it's a bit imprecise. Like, what do we mean? Do we mean keeping the economy as it is today? Do we mean extrapolating our technologies or policies? So I think it's, it's non-specific. In the, in the scientific community, we more sort of talk about what's assumed in there. So are we assuming continued trends in population or technology? Are we assuming that there is climate policy or that there isn't? Um, and we'll often also talk about um, emission or scenarios based on something related to their carbon emission or their potential warming. And so that's the way we more talk about it. I do see business as usual used a lot. I just don't like the term because I don't think it's very specific. Yeah, if I could add one point on there, um, is it because of this complexity and the challenges defining well, what is business as usual? I think we've, we've seen a trend over the last few years in the climate science literature to also thinking about looking at things simply as a function of, of global mean temperature more, more commonly. So, right, so we can talk about, well, what does a world look like with two degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit or three degrees Celsius or four degrees Celsius of warming. And one of the advantages of that is for many sorts of climate parameters, it works quite well. You know, you can look at things like um, temperature or humidity or rainfall projections in the 21st century as a function of temperature, and you get a pretty consistent story from a particular model. Um, and then that allows us to recognize, well, there are, in fact, as Kate was saying, multiple scenarios, multiple pathways of policy and technology that would get us to two degrees Celsius or three degrees Celsius or four degrees Celsius at different points in time in the 21st century. So it's sometimes useful to just think about, OK, well, what does a two degree C world look like? What does a three degree C world look like? And not get too lost in the details of what is the particular scenario that got you there. Can you tie that back, though, to, um, you know, what we typically hear about is, okay, if we don't do anything differently than what we're doing now to lower emissions um, versus if we are really aggressive and not only stop emitting carbon dioxide as much as possible, start drawing, you know, drawing down, taking it out of the atmosphere to get us to lower levels. Do, do the scenarios kind of uh, line up with that at all? Um, and, and if so, can you give us some sense of that? Yeah, I would say I think the point Bob is trying to make and, and um, is that, you know, for a, a given level of emissions, there's a relationship between emissions and temperature that he mentioned earlier. And then there's a relationship between temperature and impacts. But when you're going for that first step to get that level of emissions, that's where you've got multiple options. So you can think about it. You could either change um, energy demand or energy efficiency and reduce emissions that way, or you can change the way you supply energy. So still the same amount of energy supplied, but you changing the ratio of carbon to non-carbon fuels, and you'll get the same level of emissions. And so the idea that there's multiple paths to the same emissions or temperature level doesn't change the fact that emissions are related to temperature. So if you want to reduce temperature, you have to reduce emissions. Um, there's just multiple ways to do that. And as I alluded to, um, some of the way that scenarios are designed are around these temperature targets. So we want to limit temperature to two degrees. The climate science says that this is the emissions um, that you can allow for that. What are different ways to reach those levels of emissions? And one thing I, I may add here is that it's actually sort of helpful thinking in that framework because we, the, the low bound of scenarios is easier to define than the, than the high bound. The high bound is sort of, well, what if economic, economics and technological development and policies sort of continue along their current trajectory? And that's a pretty 
hard thing to explain that the low bound is saying, well, what if we want to limit warming to one and a half degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius or three degrees Celsius? Well, then the physics tells you you have to get global greenhouse gas emissions to net zero. And they tell you roughly what time frame you have to do it in. So if we want to limit global warming to less than one and a half degrees Celsius, basically we have to get to net zero emissions by about 2050. If we want to limit it to two degrees Celsius, we have to do it by about the 2070s. And there's some fudging on that based on how sensitive um, the climate is to warming and how much uh, negative emissions you might want to have afterwards. But basically, you know, that's sort of easier to define in many ways than what business as usual is, because there's a physical constraint there. Yeah, I want to get back to this uh, one and a half degrees C versus two degrees C uh, before we get there. Do the models account for surprises? I know this gets into sort of the economic theory of uh, extreme events or catastrophes. And I don't know that we need to get into all that, but are they are the models considered generally overestimating, underestimating? There seems to be more discussion lately that maybe they've underestimated the effects. I can talk about this. We, we talked about this. There's a whole chapter in the fourth national climate assessment that, that Catherine Aho and I led looking at this idea of potential surprises. And I would say there's sort of two basic categories of potential surprises we might worry about. Um, so one involves positive feedback, self-reinforcing cycles that can accelerate human-caused climate change and even shift the climate into dramatically different states. For instance, states with drastically smaller ice sheets or different large-scale ocean and atmospheric circulation. To some extent, elements of this are representative in the climate models, um, but to a significant extent, they're not. Um, for example, at a most basic level, um, most Earth system models do not have coupled ice sheets. And so all sorts of feedbacks evolving how ice changes in ice sheets affect the ocean and the atmosphere and changes in the ocean and atmosphere affect the ice sheets aren't there. And the geological record suggests that there are important gaps in climate models. Um, climate models have a systematic tendency to underestimate how warm sort of the past warm climates revealed by geology are, um, were, I should say. And this suggests that climate models might be missing important feedbacks that come into play as you heat up the planet. And so climate models may be more likely to underestimate than to overestimate um, warming. That said, some in the most current generation of climate models seem to have a pretty high sensitivity to warming. So that might not be true of those models. Um, so perhaps what we, we could refine that to saying is that the models that do the best jobs of explaining the past might be underestimating what's going to happen in the future because they're missing some of the things that seem to become important when we look to the geological record. Um, there's another sort of surprise that's worth mentioning that we also talk about in the National Climate Assessment, which is called a compound extreme. So that's like where you have multiple heat waves or droughts happening in different places around the world at the same time or in close succession. Um, and you can imagine like if you have droughts in multiple breadbasket regions of the world, for instance, at the same time, that's going to have an effect on humans that is larger than if it were just one and then another and then another sequentially, because having all of those disasters happening at once adds up to more to the sum of the parts. And those, to a large extent, are in the climate models, but systematically studying them is, is something relatively new. Um, and we're kind of living through one of these compound extremes in a most extreme case right now, right? We're having disasters all around the world right now caused not by climate change, but 
by COVID. Um, and I think this is sort of driving home like how vulnerable some of our, our fundamental social systems are to having disasters that you might be okay for if it were just happening in Wuhan or it were just happening in New York. But when it starts happening everywhere at once, the, the impact is considerably larger than the sum of the parts. This is, so we're talking about impact here. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about agriculture and labor in particular. Let's start with agriculture since that seems much more directly tied to climate. What are the models telling us uh, or what are they causing us to think about as far as agriculture goes? So, I mean, to borrow a phrase from Claudia that uh, it's a bit complicated. Uh, so what they do tell you, so basically um, what goes into a crop growing, there's a lot of different factors that are important. Some of it has to do with the temperature. Um, some has to do with water availability and precipitation. Some of it has to do with nutrients um, and so and, and fertilization. And so when you're looking at an individual crop, whether climate change is going to make its yield higher or lower depends on the crop. It depends on where it's grown. It depends on the magnitude of the temperature rise. It depends on how much how precipitation might change. So what you see, though, is, you know, there's a certain level of, t of warming where it could be beneficial from crops in some places, particularly if you account for the fact that increased CO2 might actually help with fertilizing those crops. But above a certain threshold, all crops have heat tolerance. Um, and so once you start to get above certain levels of warming, um, the, the yield will decline. And then if you throw in the fact that changes in precipitation are also tied to changes in climate, you might actually have a decline in yields because of precipitation effects. Uh, and so what, the, what you tend to see is when you look at risks of climate change to crop yields and to agriculture, every degree of warming increases those risks, increased risks of extreme heat events. You start to move things outside of their, um, their, their, their adapted tolerance. Um, and declines in yields do have effects on agricultural prices. Again, it's complicated. It's not uniform. There will be some places and some crops where the yields might actually go up because of climate change. Uh, but there are places where they'll go um, down as well. And, and that's what the, the, the literature tells us right now. Um, I brought up agriculture. Um, is there another sort of uh, segment of society that, that any of you would like to address in terms of major effects that the impact models show? Sure. So, I mean, another major one, and perhaps really the, the largest one from, from many perspectives, are the human health impacts, right? So when we think about human health impacts of climate change, there, there are um, sort of two effects, right? So reduced exposure to cold can be beneficial. Increased exposure to heat uh, can be harmful. Um, and so we can try to figure out how much, what those relationships are and how strong they are. Um, and I'm actually part of a, a collaboration called the Climate Impact Lab, which is a partnership of a number of schools. And our focus is on using big data sets to try to learn um, from past experience things like how does, for, for human health, how does exposure to additional day of 95 degrees Fahrenheit affect mortality versus exposure to a day of, say, 70 degrees Fahrenheit? And how does that differ um, in regions of different income across the world? And how does it differ in regions that are um, exposed, that have different sort of climates, different, different past experience? And how much does it cost uh, for, say, Seattle, which has a cooler climate, to start to adopt some of the behaviors and, say, air conditioning and technologies to have it a more flat response like somewhere like Houston does? Um, and so, you know, the, the pattern that emerges tells us that if people um, sort of are adapting 
uh, through the same approaches they've adapted to in the over the last twenty or thirty years that we can that we can see in the record, then unchecked climate change could be as fatal worldwide as infectious diseases are in a typical year right now. And even moderate emissions reductions can have a huge effect in lowering that risk um, by about a factor of five. And also that these risks are are extremely unevenly distributed, right? So low income populations tend to die as a result of the health effects of say, extreme heat, whereas wealthier places, people tend to spend a whole bunch of money to avoid dying. So it's it's costly in both places, but in one way it's costly in human lives and the other it's costly in cash. Claudia? As Bob was talking, first of all, it's, it's really difficult not to realize the uncanny similarities with what we are experiencing right now in terms of COVID. But um, what I wanted to to mention is also something that makes me think of the COVID experience, which is it's um, one of the things that is probably most difficult to model when we look at the future is the adaptation um, aspect. How are people going to adapt and, and what is that going to do in terms of, uh, you know, limiting the damage of climate change? And of course, Adapting will be easier if the pace of climate change is slower, same way as, you know, it is important to flatten the curve to, to let hospitals, you know, deal with, with the influx of, of uh, patients. So, um, we mentioned before the idea of looking at what happens at two degrees, three degrees, four degrees of warming, but um, we also need to remember that the pace of warming is important to keep in mind. And that's where scenarios actually uh, bring, you know, additional information because uh, scenarios are a consistent trajectory into the future that accounts both for the level of warming and the pace at which it's reached. That's a really good analogy, um, Claudia, in terms of the, the pace of things. We've brought this up a few times now, 1.5 degrees C, 2 degrees C. So let's talk about that a little more directly. Um, what I think people have heard and maybe get a little confused about is this idea that um, society is supposedly already surpassed its ability to limit warming to 1.5 degrees C or even 2 degrees C. Um, first, uh, can we uh, talk about that briefly? And then if there's some truth to that, then why should we keep trying? <laughs> there's a sort of fatalistic uh, side of this. But let's, let's start first with whether we've surpassed this and, and, and what uh, models tell us about all that. Yeah, so what I would say, it depends a bit on how you define 1.5 degrees C. But what the scientists tell us right now is it's still technically possible to get back to 1.5 degrees um, Celsius. Uh, there's generally, we're probably going to go above that for a little bit, um, but it is technically possible. But every year matters in how hard that is and whether or not we get there. Can you say uh, every year matters? Can you tell us what you mean? Yeah. So every year, so carbon dioxide emissions stay in the atmosphere for a long time. We've mentioned that before. So every year that we emit, we get more carbon in the atmosphere, more warming. Uh, at the same time, a lot of the emissions intensive infrastructure that we build, like power plants, last a long time. Um, and so the more, the more years of this infrastructure that we build, the more costly it could be to reduce emissions. So each year of emitting results in more warming and more costly reductions. And that means more impacts. And some of the impacts of climate change could actually make it harder to mitigate. And so some of these impacts we talked about 
um, you can change the, um, how much carbon you store in land. Um, and so the less carbon you store in land, the more you have to reduce emissions elsewhere. And so the change in climate can actually make it harder to mitigate. Claudia? Uh, I'm here thinking, you know, that these, uh, these warming targets are important and are motivating and are uh, good uh, icons of, you know, our, our aspirations. But um, it's important also to remember that they are sort of magic numbers that don't mean necessarily a lot. And, and if we get over 1.5 by two, um, you know, tenths of a degree is, is not going to be, um, you know, a failure. <laughs> if we, if we get to 2.1 rather than two, it's not going to be a failure. Um, it's important to aim for these low targets and, and the lower we, we, we go and the slower we go, uh, the better for us. But, um, it's, I find it sometimes a little bit detrimental to focus too much on, on the round numbers, be it temperature or the year by which, you know, we have to get to, to negative emissions. And I'm, I'm sure when Bob's, you know, mentioned 2050, 2070, he didn't mean that if by 2050 exactly we are not going to be at, at negative emissions, we are all going to die. But, uh, um, yeah, let's, let's remember it's a continuum of, uh, impacts and effects and uh, the lower the, the more we we curb the, the more we limit the better we are off yeah if, if, I, if I could um chime in and, and sort of em emphasize that I mean you, you hear a lot of people say well we have a decade left to avoid catastrophic climate change and I think the people who are saying that you know it comes from a good place and there's a sense in which it, it's true right if you want to hit those temperature targets we need to have you know, get off a trajectory of slow emissions growth and onto a, a trajectory of substantial emissions reduction um, in this decade. But as Claudia was saying, there's not like a cliff out there, or at least not a well-identifiable cliff um, in the climate, a temperature below which everything's fine and above which we're devastated. Um, and you certainly see confusion about that. I think we've seen more and more confusion about that over the last couple of years um, because we've been successful in communicating the idea that climate change is harmful and more climate change is more harmful, um, but not necessary, but have done it with, to some extent with these targets. I mean, the important point is that climate change causes an accumulation of harms and every ton we emit causes a little bit more damage than the last ton. So if we overshoot, as in your, your question, if we overshoot one and a half degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius, there's still a huge value in getting towards net zero emissions in a stable climate. Um, and just as has one example of that, we had a, a paper out earlier this year. It was led by a postdoc in my group, Dawei Lee. Um, and he looked at the number of people who would be exposed to extremely hot, humid days, the sort that the army would call a black flag day um, under different levels of global mean warming, uh, assuming that people were distributed around the world the way they are now. So not looking primarily at population changes, just taking that as fixed. So right now, we have a global average temperature of a little over one degree Celsius or two to about two degrees Fahrenheit above the late 19th century. And there are about 275 million people who experience um, a black flag day around the world um, in a typical year. If we get to one and a half degrees Celsius, that grows uh, to almost twice that, to five, over 500 million. If we get to two degrees Celsius, that grows to almost 800 million. If we grow to three degrees Celsius, continues growing to about 1.2 billion, right? So wherever you are on that trajectory, you get a benefit from stopping continuing along that trajectory and getting to net zero in a stable climate. 
I was going to say something similar to what Claudia and Bob said that, you know, we, we talk about precise numbers like 1.5 um, because we're using them in a computer model where you have to program in a precise number. But there is a lot of, you know, there's a whole range in between the, the, the numbers we choose. And so if you think back on the, the net zero emissions target that Bob mentioned for 1.5 seats around 2050, um, if we don't get to net zero by 2050, then there's a lot of options beyond that, right? So one of which is, you know, for two degrees C, it's net zero by 2075. So that's 25 years later, it's a half a degree more warming. There's also solutions and, and options that you can reverse some of that, those additional emissions later. They're not proven at scale for a lot of them, but they, they do exist in there. And so it's possible to not meet these precise targets and still get back to them or to go above them. And I, and I don't know that 1.6 degrees Celsius might not look a lot different than 1.5, but we do know that 2.5 would look different than 1.5. And so there are levels at which you would really notice and others where we've chosen a precise number because we're using a precise computer program. One more point. You know, it's really helpful, I think, for, for thinking about what are the impacts of climate change to think on these different temperature targets. For policy, I'm not sure it's that helpful, right? So Paris Agreement had you know, two degree, well below two degrees Celsius is close, you know, close as possible to one and a half degrees Celsius in it. But I think the more important goal in there was really that getting the, 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 for the first time in the international discussion, talking about getting to net zero emissions in the second half of the century, because net zero emissions, right? Emissions are something that are a direct output of our activities. That's something we have as a society, as policy measures that can pretty directly control, right? To go from emissions to temperature, there's a bunch of steps that we don't have control over. And so, you know, thinking about get, when we get to net zero and, and what other complementary tools we might deploy thereafter, that, that sort of puts things, I think, closer to the things that we actually are able to shape. Um, just a quick question about that, Bob. So uh, the things we can control, as you said, emissions, um, what are one or two of the major things we can't control and how do you take account of that in, in, in predictions from the models? Yeah. So, well, we put some carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, right? That's the thing we control. And then it causes a bunch of feedback. So uh, those feedbacks may vary how strong the warming is. For instance, how do clouds respond uh, to a change in carbon dioxide concentrations and, and the associated warming. That's one of the big things that causes a spread in, in what the model, different models say is what the response of clouds are. How do um, forests respond? How does um, the Arctic respond, right? These, these which can be source, additional sources of carbon dioxide and methane, right? Those affect how much warming you get. And, and we don't get to control exactly how the forests respond to warming or how the clouds respond to warming, but we do get to call to control, um, you know, those emissions that initially cause that warming. So every, every half a degree rise matters, every year matters. Uh, we've talked a little bit about net zero, but um, Kate, you brought that up. Could, could you just explain real briefly what we mean by that and, um, and how, you raise the idea that, oh, okay, even if we overshoot, we can, you know, basically draw down carbon dioxide levels to get us back. Um, could you just sort of address um, how to think about all those things? Yeah, so net zero. So if you think about um, it's net first, not gross. So some of the activities we do produce emissions, others take emissions out of the atmosphere. And if it, some of the things that take emissions out of the atmosphere are things like trees growing. 
Um, so as you grow a tree, um, it absorbs carbon and it removes it from the atmosphere. And so when you're thinking about something like net zero, it basically means that we're balancing all the positive sources of carbon with negative sources of carbon. Um, and I think the easiest one for people to understand is a plant growing. Um, but there are other uh, uh, options out there. So there are some technological solutions where you would just take the carbon out of the air. Um, it's called direct air capture and um, sequestration. Um, and it's not proven at scale, but there are some demonstration and, and prototype sorts of options out there um, that could remove carbon. And so when you talk about net zero, it's balancing positive and negative. And what I said by if you don't reach net zero by a particular year, then there's potentially options to draw down warming later that would be employing more and more of those sorts of solutions that absorb carbon in the future. And if I could just chime in, because there, there's a confusion I've run across a few times, um, and it's actually sometimes ambiguous in some of the language used around here. So when we talk about net zero, we mean net zero human-caused emissions, um, right? So so Kate was talking about trees, and, and so trees in this case would be like, trees we cause to grow to so that we're expanding the amount of, of carbon stored in trees to take up so the, the carbon we're putting in the air. But of course, there are also large um, sources and sinks of carbon dioxide that are have nothing to do with us. Um, and it's important when we think about net zero, we, we focus on the fact the ones that we have control over, because, um, you know, if you had net zero, but you were including natural sinks, that we have no control over, what that means would not be we would be stabilizing the climate. That means we would be stabilizing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that would lead to a continuously warming climate. So what we need to stabilize the climate is to have net zero human-caused emissions. Um, Claudia, this, this actually makes me think of something you said earlier on about you know what goes into the models and, and this point about only being able to control what we can control. So do the models though take into account some of these natural um, uh, causes like uh, thawing permafrost, like, um, you know, the, the um, glaciers that everyone's always focused on. Um, how much of that is taken into account and how much agreement is there about that as well? So every generation of models include more processes uh, representing the entire, you know, Earth system. And in fact, uh, we stopped calling these things climate models, and now we call them Earth system models, because we uh, are attempting to represent all these processes that, you know, uh, represent the carbon cycle, like uh, both Bob and uh, Kate were talking about. So um, we have process representation in our models that try to model how trees, vegetation, soil cycle the carbon from the atmosphere into themselves and, and out again. We do the same with the oceans that are uh, a big repository of carbon as well. And, and we have uh, biogeochemistry in the ocean represented. Um, I think Bob mentioned that representing ice sheet is a very difficult um, enterprise. And so models right now don't include interactive ice sheets. There is an attempt, but um, the, the level of computational effort in representing these things is, is uh, kind of uh, overwhelming our, our capacity to run these models for hundreds of years of model time. Um, Glaciers uh, are represented, and 
what I would say about agreement is that like every, you know, new, uh, effort, uh, it, uh, it, uh, requires time to study and confront, compare and, and draw, you know, conclusions that are robust across models and others that are not. And we have efforts international efforts in the community to facilitate that. So we have these couple model intercomparison projects that prescribe uh, experiments that are standard across climate modeling centers so that um, the model output can be compared and lessons about what is robust and what needs to be worked out in the community um, can be drawn. So, so one thing is Claudia was talking about um, the different generations of, of models, right? How, how they keep adding new elements. So they grow into increasingly complex earth system models. Um, and I think this is important to understand if you look at projections from multiple generations of, of climate models or earth system models over time, is that, you know, for certain things, we, we, we seem to be narrowing the spread of projections. But for many others, the spread is remaining pretty consistently broad. And that's not because we're not learning things. It's because we're taking things in many cases, we're taking things that were not previously part of the system that we were modeling and bringing them in. So effectively, you're converting sort of things that were, from the model perspective, unknown unknowns into sort of known unknowns. And so your your overall assessed spread isn't shrinking that much because you're you're incorporating more and more features of the real world into the model. And so that's that's sort of expanding the spread, even as we might be learning about some of the other elements uh, that have been in the models for a longer period of time. Um, I, I had two questions I kind of wanted to conclude with and have you all speak to. Um, and this is this is one of those two, which is <laughs> um, how certain are we about all the things we've been talking about here? Um, you know, there's certainly misunderstanding. There's misinformation. Um, I don't want to necessarily get into that so much, but this question of uncertainty um, is always nagging um, scientists who are trying to constantly improve it. And it also gets used out there in the real world uh, for political purposes and others. So could we, um, could each of you just talk about this a little bit? Yeah, so that's a great question. I, I think we don't know precise thresholds for different effects right now because of a lot of the things we've mentioned earlier, but we generally know the direction of change. We know um kinds of what processes are important and, and how they might affect the system. So we can't say exactly how warm it'll be if we follow a particular emissions path, but we do have a sense of what's possible in terms of future warming and what matters. And some of the things that we don't know are, are things because we're out of sample of our observations, either because we have incomplete observations or because we haven't necessarily seen this in the past. And so some of the questions on how emissions translate into temperature, like will the carbon uptake by land and ocean saturate at what point? How much more will they absorb and how much carbon will be left in the atmosphere? We do know that higher warming levels result in higher risk to human and natural systems. We know that delaying mitigation makes it more costly. Um, I'd say one of the biggest uncertainties right now is what society will do. We have an influence over which emissions path we're on, and that makes it, you know, we, we have a say in our future world. Um, and that makes it very uncertain. Claudia, Bob? I don't think I can say it better than, than Kate did, but I'd say that, you know, all models are incomplete. That's that's why they're models, right? So that, so no model is perfect, right? If you had wanted to build a perfect model, it would end up being as complex as the real world and taking as long as the real world to run. So 
what models can do is provide powerful insights, right? So they say, well, if we have this representation of core processes, and in the case of climate models, some of those core processes are physics that we've been studying, the scientific community has been studying for well over 100 years and are very well known, um, we can say, well, what is the you know, what is the spread of plausible futures of plausible current conditions we might see? So current generation of climate models does a pretty good job of, for instance, reproducing historical climate changes when they're fed with uh, the historical changes in greenhouse gas and aerosol concentration. So that means we can have a pretty good degree of confidence if we feed them, say, a counterfactual history without those human emissions. Um, and they consistently tell us that human emissions are responsible for essentially all of the observed global warming since the middle of the 20th century. Um, but as we've talked about a number of times, we do get into these out-of-sample problems. And you know, if you look at the geological record, um, in many cases, climate models tend to underestimate the warming you see during past warm period, which perhaps highlights the fact that they're incomplete and maybe some of the processes that they're missing are ones that will become increasingly important if we push the climate system too far out of sort of the realm of, of recent experience uh, against which the models have been developed and, and calibrated. So um, the geological record provides sort of a key tool because that's the only place we can turn for really looking at out-of-sample behavior. Um, but the geological record is also noisy, and so so there's um, issues comparison. But it does give us um, reason to be concerned that the further we push the climate system, the more likely it is um, we'll end up getting a larger response uh, than we think we will. I just want to add one thing to all this, and of course I agree with everything that was said, and it's the fact that, you know, we are, here we have been talking about climate models only in the perspective of climate change. But these climate models have been developed to look at processes in our system sometime independently of the problem of climate change. There is an enormous community out there of climate scientists that use this model to understand our system right now. <laughs> and and uh, there is an enormous amount of work that goes on to confront these models with observations. So what I, what I mean to say is that these climate models are, you know, subject to an enormous level of scrutiny and development, and they are useful to run experiments that we cannot run, of course, with the real system, also independently of the problem of climate change. And, and they, they are representation of our system that, that allow us to understand how the system works. And, um, uh, I, I get a little frustrated when, you know, we receive these, uh, very facile, um, criticism about what models are good for or bad for. Uh, I, I, I would like to show, you know, that the thousands of papers that are published almost every year that probe these models with respect to all sorts of things that, that don't even mention climate change. So these are really um, important tools to understand our system, even if you are a skeptic and you are not worried about climate change. And, and nevertheless, they are, you know, um, tested and, and, and tried um, extensively and they are understood for their strengths and their weaknesses and the serious climate scientists don't don't take them to lengths that are not um, appropriate 
That's a good point. So it's the same, very same climate models that are telling you, hey, is, is El Nino going to be uh, strong this, this summer? Does that mean it's going to be warmer than usual in certain parts of the country? Um, I mean, models are what create your daily weather forecast that you see on TV and hear on the radio. Uh, it's a good point that it's not as if these models are some sort of isolated exercise used to see what the temperature is going to be in 2050. It's a still a continuum of work that um, builds on itself um, and, and that we use now every single day for lots of things. Yeah. And, and, and in some cases, um, you know, for instance, NOAA has moved to using um, the same what's called the dynamical core of the model, both for weather forecasts and for, for climate projections. Right. So, so you know, in, in some cases, they're sort of philosophically similar tools, but in some cases, the actual code base now is is overlapping to what we use for our short term weather forecasts and, and long term climate. Great. So so here's the last question. We're trying to address the public and we're trying to address uh, people in Congress who are listening um, for them. What one or two bottom line messages can we give to uh, all of our folks in Congress that they can give to their constituents and other government leaders, to industry people that they talk to about climate change? Um, so I would say, first of all, climate change is real. We humans are responsible for it, and it's having damaging impacts on our health and our economy today. And these impacts are only going to get more severe with every ton of greenhouse gas we emit. The only way to stabilize the climate is to bring our net emissions of carbon dioxide to zero and to sharply reduce emissions of other greenhouse gases. The faster we do this, um, the less harmful climate change there's, there's going to be. So just as we look at the last few months, just as with coronavirus, delaying mitigation um, runs a risk of dramatically escalating harms. I can go next. Um, so I would just say when I'm thinking about this, I see a lot of discussions, and we mentioned this earlier, that suggest that the decision we have is between very high and very low warming. So like if we don't keep temperatures well below two degrees C, then you know, the world is doomed or that we're committed to high levels of warming. And I think just as we mentioned before, there's a whole range of possibilities in between very high and very low. Uh, I also see a lot of discussion about the cost of mitigation and how it will impact energy or food prices. But I think it's important to also remember that not mitigating has costs and impacts on prices. And so I would just say, if I were to summarize um, what we know in, in sort of one statement, I'm borrowing this from the IPCC special report on 1.5, but Every degree matters. Every year matters. Every action matters. Well, I just I just want to mention one thing that we didn't talk about, which is this idea that now uh, the science uh, allows us to determine um, how much climate change right now has contributed to the occurrence or the severity of extreme events that impact us directly. You know be it Harvey on Houston or be it, you know, the wildfires in the West. So there is, um, there are analyses out there that uh, are able to tell us uh, how much those events have been made more damaging uh, by climate change. So it is no longer an issue, you know, for polar bears, even if it is an issue for polar bears still, um, we are experiencing the effects of climate change right now, like Bob said, and we even have the science to tell us by how much climate change is responsible for this. So um, 
I guess if you are on the coast of the Atlantic or the Gulf, you may be worried about the next hurricane. If you are in the West, you may be worried about the next wildfire season. And so you should be concerned about climate change because these things have already been linked to climate change. But like Kate was saying, we have the means to start doing something about it and we should uh, start sooner rather than later. That's a great point to end on. Um, it's affecting us now in ways we can quantify and we have things we can do to improve. Um, so I want to thank all of you, um, Bob Kopp, Rutgers, Catherine Calvin, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, Claudia Tabaldi, also at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thank you for your time and your insights. And um, we will continue to talk about this uh, in the months to come.